Hello, everybody. Hi, good morning. We've got a good big crew here today. Uh, I'm Gwen Sandifer with Loud Minds. We've got Kate and Liz. Kate and Liz, you want to describe your, your businesses? Go for it, Kate. I'm with Kate Merib Coaching, um, mostly focusing on wellness and lifestyle coaching. And I'm Liz McLean Williams with uh, Horizon Coaching and Consulting. And um, right now I'm really focused on clients who are transitioning either in or out of um, their current job. And Kate, Liz, and I know each other through coaching colleague alignment um, and really have a passion for diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and all those things that will truly help women uh, continue to thrive in the workforce. And we choose women because we can certainly understand um, all that that women tend to go through. Half the population struggles with gender, gender inequity at points and times in their professional lives. And so we're happy to welcome Ovel Barbie to be with us today. Ovel's good friend of mine, former colleague of mine, and just a diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging expert. And so Ovel, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to receive the invite, Gwen. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. All right. Good. Well, is there anything you would like to say, Oval, as you you try to help three instigating women really help prop up other women and, and really anyone else that, that feels like they're not represented well in the workforce to begin this conversation? Well, I think you have given me the perfect um, entry, which is the conversation is so important. It takes advocacy on behalf of ourselves and others to really start to move the needle, to push for change. If we sit by as a silent participant, our silence can send a message that we're you know, condoning the conversation, whatever direction that may be going. But in the DE&I space, it's very important that we use our voices. Okay, thank you. Well, I will say uh, we've all three had frustrations through our professional lives. Um, we talk about glass ceiling, we talk about um, just the workforce transitions, um, 3 million or more women leaving the workforce through the pandemic. I heard a new term today, it wouldn't be new to some of you, the, you know, the glass cliff, is it real or not, where women can be brought in to do the really tough stuff in a, in a role or an organization, but then quickly get pushed um, because they may not be successful, nor might anyone be just because it was complex and, and difficult. But, you know, there's back and forth, whether that's real or not. Um, I think each of us probably have practical examples of how we felt as women not being included or not having voice or just feeling like we might say something and it go nowhere. And then a man say the exact same thing, even a few seconds later, and suddenly it's the, the best idea in the room. So, you know, I, I guess I'd turn it over to, to Liz and Kate, you know, what are your experiences, whether tech or healthcare or otherwise that we need Ovel's advice on? Um, I have been focused very much in the healthcare space and, um, employing and coaching frontline healthcare workers um, 
I've really struggled with some of um, my clients who are also moms who um, experience different treatment when they have to prioritize. They're the person who, you know, when the kid gets sent home from daycare being sick, they're the one that has to leave work. Um, whereas a lot of the um, men who do tend to be in the physician roles, they have another partner at home that can take on that responsibility. And so um, I've had a lot of my clients saying, you know, what what do I do? I mean, I can't pick work over taking care of my sick kid. And yet a lot of the attitudes and policies and staffing approaches don't allow for them to make the right choice without consequence. So what are some of, what would you say to one of my clients who's struggling with that um, seemingly impossible choice? Well, and there is no right or wrong answer. It's interesting. I, I was hanging on your every word, thinking about the quandary that we're in, in terms of the bias, the stereotypes that are brought into the workplace and the assumptions that are made. And during this time period with the, you know, overuse saying the great resignation, companies are now, you know, the war for talent as another saying just continues to redefine itself. And my answer would be, you know, what what is the definition that employers are um, deciding on with the word flexibility? because many women left the workforce because they were identified as the primary caregiver during the pandemic. But it gets you to a, yeah, but what are the systems that contribute to um, the outcomes in terms of the low, fewer women in leadership positions, et cetera? And so my um, response would be, we need to make sure that all employees have the same level of visibility and that as conversations are being held about you know advancement opportunities promotions performance that there wouldn't be any barriers that would occur as a result of someone you know meeting an unforeseen circumstance like having a sick child mm -hmm. you just made me think about when you were describing the, the war for talent and how there, you know, we've seen such a shift, especially with some of the really highly sought after positions such as nurses and um, certified nursing assistants, medical assistants, that one of the things that I can be doing is advising clients um, when they're interviewing to see that interview as a two-way street and be interviewing the prospective employer about their benefit programs, their approach to time off, their approach to flexibility. Um, and now, you know, more than any time in, in recent history, I think people, at least in the beginning, right before they get into the organization, they can afford to be more discerning. And I think a lot of the women that I work with don't even, they just, it doesn't come to their mind to ask those questions. So I think that's where we as coaches can make an impact when we're, I think, especially in the work that I'm doing right now with women who are 
transitioning back into the workforce from staying home with their kids to help them find those that language to ask those kinds of questions and be discerning about what organization they're getting themselves into. Now, just a quick uh, follow up. I, I think that's an excellent point in HR circles that I'm involved in. We've been talking about this is a period of consumerism for even candidates and your employees who have a range of choices and options. Uh, different definition of geography with so many remote work opportunities. Um, companies saying, you know, we're going to increase starting wages. We're going to, you know, cover 100% tuition, um, to conversations about well-being. Candidates will be taking that into consideration. It should always be a two-way conversation. I want to shift a little bit from um, the happy area where, gosh, there's so much um, war on talent in the sense of attraction and over into the tech world where we are experiencing um, the first real feeling of contraction um, for this upcoming recession. Um, you know, there's been layoffs that have been announced in almost every big tech firm um, in the on the West Coast, um, and we're feeling it pretty steeply. Um, so, well, I'm wondering if there's anything that you can talk to us about with respect to boundaries, which are a lot of what my clients come to me with is it, there's this combination of workaholic and this inability of setting boundaries. Um, and in a trifecta situation where you might not feel like you have the um, the leverage to, to set boundaries, um, can you talk to us a little bit about um, how you would advise folks um, within you know, uh, diverse groups or not? Um, though I feel like diverse groups often get um, uh, negative reactions for wanting to set boundaries. Um, or the inability to be able to not have boundaries because they do have those obligations at home. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that balance of boundaries? Do I have the option to say pass? Oh. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. And you know the answer is, it's gonna sound not very clear, but I, I'm gonna cover some points in responding to that. What, what I have found a significant DE&I challenge is the whole generational perspective, where you have a workforce with baby boomers, Gen X, you know, millennials, Gen Z, and how challenging it is to weigh in on conversations and not factor in what your generation established as normal. And so a traditionalist may say, you know, you have to put in 50 to 60 hours a week, you have to be present in the office, blah, blah, blah. Other generations are saying, you know, I want more flexibility. There's a hashtag that is, you know, trending called quiet quitting, where people are, are either silently saying, I'm not going to go above and beyond in contributing. I want more balance, etc." So my answer is, regardless of, you know, diverse category, if you find yourself in a job that you have passion for and you have great leadership, that's a component of, you know, wanting people to go above and beyond. 
those are things that companies should be very mindful of. And if I were, you know, weighing in, I would be saying at an organization, you should be heavily investing in your leaders. There is a competency that is talked about now being an inclusive leader. And what does that mean? It means being able to zero in on the individual set of circumstances that your team members bring and helping that person feel you know, valued, wanted within the organization and addressing things that may surface that are you know, individually specific. Thank you, Avel. And I guess I'd like to bring both Liz and Kate's questions together a bit and, and ask, is it hopeful to view all of this more as an economic or business proposition? Um, as Liz said, those that are seeking positions view this as a, a consumer. They're shopping and they need to shop for the best employer, the best environment, the best uh, whatever will support them, but also the employer to view this um, as if we truly believe DEI belonging is best for the organization, then isn't that good for the economy ultimately? Isn't that good for growth? Isn't that good for sustainability? Um, so I guess in all this, you know, is there an ROI proposition of DEI we need to keep in mind? I would say absolutely. There's a lot of data that shows that companies that do well in the DEI category outperform other organizations that are in their same industries. And it's always a, a tough conversation in landing on why is DEI important in terms of either you're on the page of socially it's the right thing to do or a train of thought it's a business necessity and more more recent data suggests that the majority of employees in today's environment want to work for an organization that has a social conscience and a component of that is DEI efforts along with sustainability etc and so um Organizations have to find a reason to be supportive. The cost variable is always one that gets people's attention, you know, in terms of maximizing productivity, better ideas, innovation, et cetera. I just want to jump on top of that and say, yes, and, right, the, that um, component of look at any industry. Um, I'm most familiar with tech. You guys are most familiar with healthcare, but any industry, the problems are not easy. The problems that we're trying to solve are not easy. You think about the world's problems these days. Those are not easy problems to solve. And so it would be criminal to not have the most diverse set of problem solvers in the room to try to figure out those really hard problems. It would just be silly because if it were a bunch of Kate's little, <laughs> little, you know, minions of Kate, we would come up with a Kate solution and that solution might be amazing, but it's likely not the best solution than that if there was a Kate and a Gwen and a Liz and a Noval and a James and a Jerry and a whatever else, right? All together trying to say, oh, but did we think about this or did we think about that? Mm -hmm. So. Um, I think you're right, Oval, from the standpoint of candidates do look at the, the social aspects of a company because it, it kind of tells you whether or not the company 
is just out there for consumerism or if there there's a bit of a soul say a bit of because it's not a person it's an entity and ultimately there for you know for profit but then there's that aspect of does that translate inside and how do we think about each other and how we how do we treat each other and then how do we solve problems together to to do what the company needs to do so if it's better economically and from the business perspective and it's better socially just doing the right thing, then why isn't it happening? Is it just because it's uncomfortable? I would say the conversations are uncomfortable in that, you know, what, what I have come to appreciate is that when the room goes to silence, when you start talking about DE&I, it's not that people don't have thoughts. You have the range of, I, it's not me, I have a black friend, a gay friend, a Latino friend, or I don't agree and I, I don't wanna verbalize or people being you know, very cautious about choice of words so that they may not offend anybody. And my response to that is my, two of my famous words put together, which is, so what? <laughs> that you're uncomfortable. You know, you put your, feet in the shoes of a diverse person, regardless of category, a female who may be the only female in an all-male meeting, a diverse person like myself who I could walk through my neighborhood with a hoodie, a baseball cap, and get very different looks in terms of who I am as a person. So my answer to people saying, well, people are going to be uncomfortable is, is truly so what, you know, People have uncomfortable experiences all the time. If there's no dialogue, then, then we're not going to have any change. I think the other barrier that comes up that is a practical barrier, um, but that is also rooted in discomfort, is that when leaders are trying to make business decisions and get things off the ground, there's often that pressure to do it quickly. And they often don't have somebody next to them saying, hold on, who else, what else should be in this conversation before you move forward? And so it's a different source of discomfort because you've got the leader that's like, no, I've got all the data points that I need. We have all this pressure financial constraints, we need to move forward. And there need to be the people you said earlier in the conversation about that it's about using your voice, right? And so make first, you know, I think about people, my backgrounds in HR, people in that role um, who often are potentially the only woman in, in a meeting full of men um, being willing to make themselves uncomfortable to say, wait a minute, who else, what else, before you move forward with this, and then make that leader uncomfortable and willing, make the leader and um, willing to make themselves uncomfortable to wait and to solicit more diverse perspectives and input and innovative ideas. Oh, I, I agree, Liz. It, it, it triggers a thought that I have in, when I talk about you know, is the work charity work or should we be looking at this from a systems lens? And so the example that you provided, it triggered that thought because as you start talking about 
fixing the systems, you need to have data. I say sometimes that the D in DE&I is actually for data because you need that to start zeroing in on the, you know, disparate outcomes to know what you should fix. And the fixed part of it is the tougher part, which are the systems, where you start talking about policies, practices, procedures, and that's where the return on investment is longer and is not as immediate. And that's where you know DEI um, advocates will say it's taking too long. But if the recommendations address the policies, the procedures, the practices then it may take a, a longer time before you start seeing the results of your effort and a process where you say, are we ready to go? And you don't have multiple or diverse perspectives weighing in, it could be a miss. I, I, it reminds me of examples where you see uh, a flyer or a brochure from a company that doesn't represent any hint of diversity and it's already out there and people say, how did this happen? This is truly not reflective of at least the visible diversity within our organization. And as you start saying, who were the stakeholders? Who gave approval? That's where you need recommendations that address those gaps. All right, so any other questions for Avell? A lot of thought ripples mm -hmm. going on just from this conversation today. Okay, so Oval, if we have clients who are feeling stuck in their current role or are out of the workforce currently, but are hesitant about getting back in because of all they've experienced previously, regardless of gender, but anyone underrepresented, what advice would you have for that person to put their best foot forward? Well, you know, wearing my HR hat, I I have what I have coined as no subject meeting requests from employees where, you know, I, I, I tell people don't, you know, really probe or why a person wants to meet with me. But in many cases, I end up sitting across from someone who tells me I don't really like the job that I'm in, you know, and then duration of time, it could be a year, 10 years, et cetera. And, I start asking, well, why do you stay? Well, it's either for the benefits or, or some reason that is not specific to the job. So as you're coaching people, you want to um, be sure that they're in the right role that allows them to utilize skills and competencies that give them you know, some level of joy, because that is important in terms of you know, helping them be even better in the role that they've signed up for during the pandemic, we were talking about nursing staff and there was a reference from someone who said, it seems like at this particular juncture when we went from the hero stage to, you know, irate patients, et cetera, that the job, that the profession became a job. Mm -hmm. And so that piece I would say is very important in, in working with the client, making sure that they're in the right space to begin with the quiet quitting, et cetera, is very real. 
I have one for um, So we, we mentioned inclusive leadership as being such an important factor of changing systems, et cetera. If you're a manager in a company that doesn't offer such training, do you have um, some recommendations over courses that um, you have uh, that you can recommend for uh, managers trying to get that training? I'll say for me personally, it's, it's not an endorsement. And I would say that I'm sure there's a semblance of uh, my recommendation out there, but the most impactful leadership training that I personally went through was called situational leadership training, where it teaches you as a leader to meet your direct report, where they are in terms of stage of development, et cetera. It, it was, it's very impactful. I, I reference it basically throughout my career. And that was actually at my very first company right outside of college because it works in today's environment. It tells you that if you're, you know, you have an employee who requires a lot of detail, maybe you assign someone on the team so that they are growing and give that newer person the oversight that they require. If you have someone that is more experienced, they may not require the day-to-day check-in, but it, it forces you to be versatile as a leader, which would help you address the multiple work styles that you could um, experience in the workplace. Yeah, I love that one. I took that like 15 years ago. Yeah, and it was <laughs> and it, it, what I like about it too is it grows with, um, it could be that the task is new to the employee. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they could be very high on the development scale for anything else, but not on this task. So I love that one. And thank you for, for that recommendation because I'd forgotten about it. <laughs> Good. Avel, any other implicit biased assessments that are easy, simple, because we're all biased. We just are. And maybe we aren't sure what our biases are. So any things we could do offline individually? I'm a proponent of, you know, unconscious bias training. What, what I have experienced is the range where you have online options of, you know, one hour self-taught, um, instructor-led, facilitated, but I would be looking for an outcome that gives you as an individual insight in terms of what your particular biases are. Mm -hmm. And we all have them. And so that it would be on my list of criteria because there's a multitude of, you know, implicit unconscious bias training options out there. The ones that give you as an individual specific insights in terms of your biases and how they may play out in the workplace, I would say would be the most impactful. Okay, good. Any other tips, any major thoughts you wanna be sure get out there? So two things, one is um, the most significant challenge that I face in the DE&I space, we've kind of already talk, talked about it, but I'll give you a hint in terms of what that is. silence <laughs> and then people ask you know what you know what can i do to participate in the space i always have these cards everywhere someone gave me feedback that i actually need to make this more user friendly for people that may have vision challenges mm -hmm. which is hashtag use your voice and the correct version should be a capital u a capital y and a capital v in terms mm -hmm. of a hashtag but this particular card says, I will use my voice too, 
And then you fill in the blanks in terms of how you as an individual can actively participate in the conversations, something that you can sign up to do differently to support the efforts. So that's it. Love that. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. So Thank I appreciate you. the invite in Liz and Kate. Thank you. Conversations. <laughs> really appreciate you. Agree. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.